Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we're predestined for fun. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. Or you can listen to the live stream at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello. Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hello. Now, we're going to start off today's show in celebration of American Independence Day. Mm-hmm. Suck it, British. Um, <laughs> with our our favorite historian um, making it on an early edition of the shit list, and that is none other than Mr. David Barton. He's of course one of the uh, the favorite pseudo historians of the Tea Party movement. He's been telling conservative Christian evangelicals exactly what they want to hear, which is that America was founded as a Christian nation. Right. And that, that there Paul is no... Revere was ringing them bells and shooting them guns and telling the I British that think we that were going to be Sarah free Palin. and we were going to be... Oh. See, I get confused. <laughs> it's hard to distinguish. It, they're similar in their uh, intellectual ilk. So, Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we talk about Barton's claims at length and debunk them at length in episodes 17 and 49. And if anybody's interested in that, the best source to go to for debunking David Barton is uh, Chris Rada. She's a researcher for the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, and her website is liarsforjesus.com. She does point-by-point debunkings of him. But one of his latest outrageous statements was um, on a Christian television show on the Daystar television network called Celebration. They were discussing the creation-evolution debate, and so he makes this claim that, uh, well, here's, here's the quote. Well, you go back to Darwin, that's not even a new debate, because you go back to founding fathers, as far as they were concerned, they'd already had the entire debate on creation-evolution, mm-hmm. and you get Thomas Paine, who's the least religious founding father, saying you've got to teach creation science in the public school classroom. Scientific method demands that. Mm-hmm. Now, we're opposite today. Wow. So you, so Thomas Paine yes. is who saying knew? this. Who, who, hmm. Thomas Paine, who, by the way, I, I mean, it, it was a founding father and one of my favorites, but he was not invited to the Constitutional Congress. Uh, Constitu- well, not to mention he lived and died how many years before Darwin? Before Darwin. Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> the idea that they had had the debate on evolution and creationism is Astounding. He was so far ahead of his time, he not <laughs> only right. knew what he was arguing against, but the counter-argument. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. Actually, he actually died in the same year that Darwin was born. Oh, Did really? he really? Oh, I, I didn't <laughs> 1809. So. Wow. Oh. I, I was trying to think, what was there anything historical that Barton was taking and twisting to fit this? And I, I couldn't find anything from Thomas Paine. 
But I do know Thomas Paine was a deist. I do know that he had many criticisms of the atheists at the time. Right. And just like Voltaire, I mean, some of their some of their criticisms were good ones because yeah. at that time before Darwin, you had atheists making the claim that rats, for example, spontaneously generated out of garbage. Out of filth, yes. And if that those are the Happens arguments, at my house all the time. <laughs> yes. That is not evolution by natural selection. Right. If those are the arguments that were around, I could see somebody like Thomas Paine speaking out against them very strongly. But okay. to but to make an equivalence between this and yeah, like the modern, modern evolutionary yeah, theory is just ridiculous. Uh, I was going to use this line that Michigan is the cherry state, and w- that's why David Bartman should actually you know come here because he cherry picks better than any other. No, that doesn't. <laughs> really. Wow, that well, was well, wow. reaching. His, his whole you. method is his whole method is to take quotes here and there and like and then and then make them yeah. seem as if they're representative. Right. You know, like he'll take Jefferson's you know most religious day that he ever lived and then say that that was representative yeah. of his statement. Or, or he's not opposed to just manufacturing quotes out of thin air. Whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. They're just not confirmed. Yes, they're unverified. Unconfirmed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when you look at some of these unverified quotes, you can actually find where they come from. Uh, Chris Rada does a great job of pointing this out. Some right. of them come from hymns. Some of them come from uh, ministers at the time. They're They're not founding father quotes. Right. They're Pulled from other sources Some and then attributed. Some of them come from episodes of Father Knows Bass. It's just <laughs> where, wherever he happens to be looking at the time. Now, uh, of course, Barton is not just the world's worst historian, but he also makes social commentary occasionally. Right, Justin? Yes. Yes, very profound social commentary. Um, so he and and uh, another guy, they host this show called The Wall Builders on, on AFR Radio. This is American Family Radio. Right. Now, um, now, is this is this about uh, a border between Texas and Mexico? Is that is that what their show is about? The wall builders? No, no, they're oh. building, they're strengthening the wall that separates church and state. Yeah, because oh, they don't they don't want the right. state imposing on their church. That's they're, right. They're all about the yeah. you know. Yeah, we wow, can agree on that. Orwellian. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he's he's going off on this on this rant about um, government regulation. He's talking about how, you know, government regulates fast food. You know, what, are the, what place do they have for doing this? That right. they regulate cigarettes and, and salt, apparently. Right. Because um, he, he is a teabagger. We have to remember that. Right, right. right. So, so yeah. he's, he's talking about the Center for Disease Control. Uh, and then he starts then – you, then you hear the conversation change topics. He starts to talk about homosexuality and how, you know, homosexuals are seven times more likely to contemplate or commit suicide, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is the case. Yes. And he, so he starts saying, well, how, you know, this is, this is unhealthy. You know, if, if the Center for Disease Control were to be consistent, uh, they oh. should condemn homosexuality. <sighs> and so he's saying that we need to regulate homosexuality. Now he because plays it's a it public smart. health threat. Right. Is what he's he plays plays a warning label on all the uh, <laughs> outside the, the gay bars or right, on right. chaps. <laughs> <laughs> he plays it smart and doesn't get real specific to what he actually means I'm by sure regulating he homosexuality. Doesn't know what he means, so I don't know that playing it smart is necessarily well, the case. Has he ever put any thought into why the suicide rate might be higher yeah, amongst homosexuals? I don't homosexuals? think he's ever. Really this kind of sounds that. like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's it it's great that they get to play both sides, you know. We can drive them into Torah and yeah. then blame them when they display the pathologies. Yeah. 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 Why do all these homosexuals want to kill themselves? They're just diseased. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. nice. But that does um, uh, 
segue us into a very positive news story, right? Uh, coming out of New York, where gay marriage, as of July 24th, will be free and available to the masses. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most exciting things about it being legal in New York, which is now the fifth or sixth state, I believe, that has legal gay marriage, it's up. is that there's no res- residency requirement in New York to get married. Hmm. So you can literally go to New York and get married that day and go back home to whatever state you live in. Um, unlike a lot of the other states where you have to establish some kind of presence there before you can get married in the state, right? So but they that works out. They really wouldn't well. recognize it. Not a lot. Not all the states. Not are every state it. would, but so, like Washington D.C., the District of Columbia does uh, has a law that says they will recognize marriages from anywhere else, from any other state. Right. Some states do not, obviously, but. Uh, um, so that is a help, and of course, New York would recognize gay marriages. One of the key provisions that helped get this passed, though, was religious exemption. Hmm. They said um, any religious group that does not want to recognize gay marriage doesn't have to, which is totally cool with me, right? And uh, anyone object to this? Yeah, the uh, when they were talking about like the houses of worship wouldn't have to perform the ceremony or right. the ministers, fine, fine. And that uh, and that groups wouldn't have to recognize it, but that also includes and they were specific about this groups that accept government money yeah, for other that's, services. That's they were right. afraid. That's the I mean, issue. this that's is what they wanted the to avoid was losing government money for discriminating. Basically, exactly. exactly. I don't want a hom- to force the homophobic minister into marrying gay people. Well, some sadistic side of me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's like that's the deal. It. If you're going to get government right. funds, which you shouldn't be in the they first shouldn't be getting place, anyway, or being then right. you got to play by government rules. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have no problem with that with any particular church deciding, no, we're not going to perform gay marriages. If I went to a Catholic church and said, I want to get married here, they would say, no, you're not Catholic. You're not a member of the church. And that's fine. That's their right to discriminate. But when they're getting taxpayer money and they're discriminating, that is a problem. But because of this provision, in part, and also because, you know, it's, it's politics, so money was involved... Um, four Republicans voted for gay marriage in the state of New York, not all, which is not all of them, um, all of the Republicans in the state Senate, but some of them did vote for gay marriage. Yeah. One Democrat voted against it. One Democrat, uh, Senator Ruben Diaz, who shockingly also happens to be a minister. A Pentecostal minister. A Pentecostal minister, mm. no less. I'm sure yeah. that was a coincidence. Uh, that, that's not, it's not uh, cool unless it's on the down low. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other uh, Republicans that, that, that voted for it, uh, Jim Malisi, mm-hmm. um, he actually, two, two years ago, he voted against it. And right. I just heard an NPR interview with him, and he was saying that he did it for purely political reasons. Of course. And so now, you know, now he was now he felt free <clears throat> to vote the way that he he truly wanted that, to. So this is it's surprising how occasionally this issue cuts across um, party lines. It's not as straightforward as Republicans don't want gay marriage and right. Democrats do. Um, a lot. It tends to have a lot more. Uh, to do with a people's experience with homosexuals, Dick Cheney, for example, who is 
a monster on par with Ronald Reagan and Mother Teresa um, is not opposed to gay marriage. Right. Um, because he has a daughter who's gay, and he understands, oh, this is a Probably this the, is a human right. There's also some libertarians who actually walk the libertarian exactly. walk and realize that you can't prevent the government from uh, doing one thing and allow them to do other things. So, right. So yeah. Not, didn't uh, um, didn't Ron Paul make a big deal about that at, at the latest Republican debate? Mm-hmm. I mean, I respect that. There's a man who does stand on his principles. It was his personal contact with I Bruno that changed his mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somehow I don't think I'm that's here. what did it. <laughs> I, um, I just want I, I want to read this quote from uh, Ruben Diaz, the Democrat from the Bronx, actually, who voted against gay marriage. He said, I always knew it would come to pass in New York, and if they allow it here, the whole nation goes. Which is very encouraging because I think uh, to some extent he may be right. He then added, but the rent is too damn high. (laughs) (laughs) No, he did add, um, but I am a Christian first, then a Democrat. I always vote my conscience. So he's taking – So he's forgetting about his constituents. Exactly. It's more important. (laughs) His religion is more important than – the people who elected him. Could you imagine if, doing like a, his job. If, exactly. if a Muslim said that or an atheist said that, like I'm, right. a, I'm oh, an atheist yeah, right. first or a Muslim first? <laughs> or, a Catholic, or a Catholic running for president. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, uh, spe- speaking more about how, you know, this this does kind of, it's it's not always, it's not so specific on, on party line here. The Republican majority leader here, Dean Scalos, is the one who actually brought the bill to the floor. Right. If it weren't for him, it wouldn't have been voted on. Absolutely. Yeah. So that he deserves, I think, credit for Maybe that. Maybe I'm being cynical too, but they probably Republicans are also probably recognizing nationwide the shift, drastic yes. shift in public opinion, yep. tilting young, tilting immigrants. Even those who court Christian well, votes because the younger generations yep. right. now and you're are talking changing their New York Republicans are different than Wyoming Republicans. You know, I mean look at um um Rudy Giuliani, who is much more, at least used to be much more progressive in social issues. Poor choice. At least. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So there is a difference. And, you know, I think it's a good sign. And you're absolutely right. The The studies show the demographics are changing. The younger generation is for gay marriage. The problem is overcoming the laws that the older generations enacted, right. like the constitutional amendments we're going to need – I think what has to happen is a change at the federal level. A few state, a few more states will go, hopefully California, which is so close. Um, and yeah, I, I love the fact that people in uh, Palmyra or New York can get married now. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and um, – Which – share the significance of that? Well, because <laughs> – everybody's um, going to get it. The funding for Prop 8 – Came uh, in large from, part yes. from the from the the church, from yeah from, from the, the Mormon Saints. church. Right. Yes. That was where they found by, their their golden tablets. Yes. Supposedly. they could save themselves by saying we've uncovered a st- another set of tablets. That says, <laughs> well, I guess it's okay. That is what they do Just every like time the social winds the, change. Every time, whoop, we got a new oh, revelation. Yeah. No, black people can <laughs> get into heaven without being slaves. That was their most. Native Americans change. don't <laughs> turn white when they convert. It's a very. Uh, I'm so glad our prophets clarified these things for us. It's a very clever way to to fix that cognitive dissonance. <laughs> it there. really is. Yeah. So, um, absolute props to um, the New York Senate and uh, to the people of New York. It means a lot more uh, Niagara Falls weddings 
for uh, for gay couples, which is great. They so, can, they, they're free to, to be as campy as anybody else. Who exactly. Is that code for something? Niagara Falls <laughs> no. wedding? Is that a is that a sex act <laughs> like, like a, a dirty Santa? Like a dirty or, Santa. <laughs> Oh, you would. Th- why would? Why do you have to ruin all that's good and true? Oh, Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy! I can't believe that he gave him a Niagara Falls. <laughs> to, to be fair, it wasn't Jeremy's fault that he said that. He was he was predestined to say that. Ooh, that, that good transition. Uh, which brings us to this week's edition of God Thinks Like You. Yep, brace yourself. We're going to be talking about determinism again. Oh, God. But we won't go on for too long about this one. Luke, uh, you recently discovered a quite infuriating article in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Yes, professors get uh, the Chronicle, which is kind of like our, you know, manifesto that we get every week of what's going on in the professorate. And I was surprised (laughs) that uh, even... You know, uh, that other people are interested. Uh, well, I guess I take that back. Like philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists are increasingly taking up the determinism free will debate, which right. seems to have been around for thousands of years. Mm. But, uh, you know, now we have more evidence. As listeners to our podcast remember in the past, we've discussed some of the things in neuroscience that are applicable to whether actions are choices versus determined. Yeah. But what infuriated me was that this, uh, this article uh, entitled Why We Need to Believe in Free Will by John Horgan was published in the Chronicle where he goes through and kind of jaw-droppingly suggests that free will, and he names names, there's some studies that suggest that we're better off with free will. He, at that point, he doesn't necessarily address whether it's true or not, but just says mm-hmm. it would be true. It's better when people do believe they have free choices for things. But he's not talking about whether or not we actually do have, whether or not we do have free will versus being determined. He's mm-hmm. talking about... It would be better if people thought they had free will. That's the majority of it. He yeah. does a little bit of a bait and switch where I wasn't sure exactly what he did believe. Yeah. But, right. but yes, most yeah, of it was, hey, it's better that we all believe that. What uh, Horgan explains as being free will is actually determinism. It's the determinism, the type of determinism that Daniel Dennett would argue for, right. uh, which is a kind of a form of neocompatibilism, not any different from what we've advocated on right. the show before. But Horgan keeps on calling it free will. Mm-hmm. For some reason, you're absolutely correct in that a lot of people are trying to point to new studies uh, and say that, look, whether or not free will is an illusion, mm-hmm. it is an illusion that we need to have because it results in prosocial behavior. Whereas determinism actually has some serious negative consequences uh, for behavior. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, a much better critique what I found on uh, the Simple Apologetics blog. It's simpleapologetics.blogspot.com. The author there, Carson Wittenauer, um, actually, I was pretty impressed by some of the stuff that I read. It was a pretty good article. Yeah, I I didn't really survey much of his blog, but what I read seemed to be very calm and dispassionate and uh, carefully worded. Yeah, it seems like he has a a fairly good balance on his blog of explaining atheist arguments and without – 
this is stupid, this is what atheist thinks, actually yeah. giving a, a fairly fair shakedown of, of what the... I don't agree is. with his ideas, but some, no. of the, some of the qualities he models are the ones yes. I'd like to see yeah, and well more apologists. In case listeners haven't heard the earlier episodes, uh, apologists that we debate a lot are very interested in preserving free will. Jeremy right. spent a lot of time debating one on, Don, on a couple on the Don Johnson show, but clearly the reason that the issue is relevant is to them is because it's necessary for certain aspects of Christian theology. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they also believe it to be a negative aspect of the atheist worldview. That's something they can nail us on right. uh, because I think they quite re- rightly recognize that if you accept a materialist world, if you're a naturalist, certain consequences follow, and that is our behaviors mm-hmm. are determined. They right. follow the same laws of physics that everything else does in the universe. Right. Well, uh, the author um, Wittenauer on on simple apologetics, made a case that determinists uh, or made a case that atheists are going to have a tendency towards antisocial behavior because determinism follows from atheism and results in antisocial behavior. And here's what he cited. I don't think we need determinism as a scapegoat for our antisocial behavior. <laughs> I mean, come on now. I was going to say, let's lash his tires, but then I realized <laughs> I, was, I was determined to do so. Um, he cites several studies. It's actually pretty intimidating to, to look at them. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll quickly give you a summary of what he cites. One by lead author Baumeister in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin entitled Pro-Social Benefits of Feeling Free, uh, where they try to demonstrate that chronic disbelief in free will was associated with reduced helping behavior, induced Disbelief in free will reduced willingness to help others as well. Another study by Viney, Attitudes Towards Punishment in Relation to Beliefs in Free Will and Determinism, uh, that's from the journal Human Relations, actually said that people would more harshly retaliate if they believed in determinism. Another one, Social Psychology and Personality Science, had an article by lead author Stillman. Uh, There's going to be links to all these on the blogs, but I thought I'd reference them here. Personal philosophy and personnel achievement, belief in free will predicts better job performance, which attempts to prove exactly what the title says. One one I thought was very interesting because it was a replay of the Benjamin LeBay uh, studies that we've cited, Mm -hmm. actually, as supporting determinism. Uh, this one is uh, David Rigoni, um, inducing disbelief in free will alters brain correlates of pre-conscious motor behavior, which was a bizarre one where primed with uh, determinism, the uh, readiness potential to actually make a, a choice was was reduced. Uh, it seemed that you could actually measure it in the brain, the yeah, ability to choose... Decreased. The LeBay finding is sort of famous because it showed that when people were asked to uh, choose when to lift a finger or make a muscle response while watching the clock, their, uh, the and then make a note of what point on the clock they actually chose to make the movement, their brain potential, which was being tracked, showed earlier activation than when the people actually right. consciously thought that they had chosen made the choice to make the move. 
That is meaning that yeah. uh, that the brain seems to go first and give rise to both the conscious notion of, oh, I'm going to move my finger now and the movement itself. Right. It was like mm -hmm. as early as like six seconds before or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was, it was, a, it was wow. a gap there. And so uh, this study There actually, were problems with that study, but other mm -hmm. future ones improved it where they were inserting electrodes directly into the brain and finding the same gap, actually a wider gap. So, or inducing the, with the yeah. transcranial magnetic stimulation, you can actually right. pulse the brain and make the person tend to, to like go on one side of the body um, or the other, right. which is, I think, a little bit more devastating to free yeah. will. But one, one more study that wasn't mentioned on this website but was kind of an inspiration for a lot of these studies was uh, Voss and Schuller's uh, study, The Value of Believing in Free Will from Psychological Science, which said that if you primed people with determinism primes, uh, they would cheat more often on a math test. Now, the first thing I want to say about these is believe, determinism, whether it's true or not, uh, doesn't have anything to do with positive or negative consequences of the belief. Uh, th that's a completely separate issue. And all of these studies acknowledge that we are not commenting right. on whether or not free will itself is illusory or real. Um, We're just uh, saying yeah. people respond better right. when they think it is real. It might have negative consequences, and we'll just have to deal with that, but it happens to be true, and that's right. what we've argued in previous episodes. But we have gone further than that. I've made the case, and some of the guests on our show, like Tom Clark, have made the case, uh, Tom Clark from Center for Naturalism, have made the case that actually society might be better off if we ditched our belief in contracausal free will, mm -hmm. if we realize that we are the product of social and biological forces, we might be more compassionate. We right. might uh, we might not uh, we're not, seek punitive. We're no longer punishing people for, yeah. for punishment's right. sake. We're, yes. If you actually understand what it means to be determined. Right. Yeah. It undermines retributive justice and those exactly. types of things. Right. Now, uh, the thing is, that was an entirely philosophical argument, mm -hmm. and it wasn't an empirical one. Right. And so studies like this make me pause and say, well, now, yeah. now we're, we're entering into the laboratory, and right. let's see what actually happens. But I actually think these studies uh, show some serious, serious flaws uh, that are easy to point out. Um, for one... All of these studies, when they are trying to induce free will skepticism in people, um, they seem to – all of them save one. All of them but the Baumeister study, uh, pro-social benefits of feeling free. All of them but that one uh, use one of two sets of primes. And as soon as I read them, uh, I think longtime listeners to the show will see right away what the problem is. Uh, the one, the one that the Voss and Schuler study and a couple of others actually use as their as their prime is they make people read this quote from Francis Crick um, of Watson and yeah, of Watson the and Astonishing Crick Hypothesis fame. book, the oh. DNA fellows. Although we appear to have free will. In fact, our choices have already been predetermined for us. We cannot change that. Hmm. There so, seems to be a... <laughs> <laughs> right away, as we've discussed, that is one of the biggest misconceptions mm -hmm. about what determinism actually means. Right. Simon Blackburn, a very famous philosopher, has called that the lazy sophism argument. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, if I'm going to get cancer, I'm going to get cancer, says the smoker. I can't avoid my fate. Right. Ignoring, of course, <laughs> that the understanding that you might have cancer might cause stress. It right. might actually uh, be the thing that, that prompts behavior. Uh, as we've talked about on the show before, the notion that responsibility vanishes in a deterministic world is is a false one. Right. Um, we just have to modify the concept. For individuals, 
we're responsible in the sense that we have to live with the consequences of our actions and a knowledge of that fact or an awareness of how our thoughts and actions are going to influence future decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, that might actually be what tips the scales right. uh, in, in favor of something. We and, can insert ourselves into other people's causal chain and hopefully well, right. get and it to a point where... Socially, it works the same way. We hold people responsible to the degree exactly. that 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 social pressure actually might have a chance of altering their future behavior. We don't get mad at grandma uh, because she doesn't remember our name because she has Alzheimer's and we know it won't make a difference. But we do get mad at Johnny for stealing the pack of gum because the shame of our disapproval might actually recondition him uh, in his future actions. So this Crick quote is a complete misunderstanding. It's a fallacy of what determinism actually means. So if they're priming people with lazy sophism Mm -hmm. and the result is people behave like lazy sophists, we should not be surprised. (laughs) I don't think we have anything to be concerned about. It also has, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the passage also has some things in there like, you know, all your cherished dreams and hopes, they're all a product of neural activity. I mean, it was very, it adds a certain element when I was reading it of almost like nihilism as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as it doesn't matter, which clearly is a compound because if you're going to claim that it's just the deterministic aspects of the passage, you have to have different passages, one with a deterministic Right. Whatever you know, you call, it. and then also one that had a positive form of terms. Right. That they're, is they're when people putting a value judgment on it. Yeah, yeah when people so and so isn't wasn't in control of their behavior because they got a obesity gene from their parents, and they were relieved to find that out. Now that's determinism, but it has a whole thing of of, of removing a sense of guilt from mm-hmm. it. Right now, right. now the the other uh, studies that don't use the Crick quote, there's actually a scale. The the uh, Paulus Margeson scale of free will and determinism belief, which is used by almost all of these studies now, it's kind of scary that this is becoming kind of a standard in free will determinism research. Um, but here's some of the questions on that free will determinism scale that they use to assess how strong of a determinist you are. Um, one question is, uh, or the, people are asked to, uh, to what degree they agree with these statements. Uh, what will be, will be. There's not much you can do about it. Or another one is, I believe my future has been predetermined by fate. <laughs> another one is, people do not choose to be in the situations uh, they end up in. It always just happens that way. It also it also conflates uh, determinism and indeterminism. A lot of the other questions are the complete opposite of determinism. Uh, they measure indeterminism, saying things like, oh, everything is just due to a chance event. Uh, no one no one has a chance of predicting what will ever happen in the future, which is the exact opposite right. of what determinism yeah. actually teaches. So none teaches. of this has to do with determinism. There's a lot of predeterminism, like fate ideas, like what's right. going to happen is going to happen. It's already mapped out for it's us. It's a very That's sloppy not and muddled is. idea. They're equivocating of determinism. on determinism, predeterminism, and, and fatalism. Yeah. Right. Or, or and item five says, I'm going to be an axe murderer and there's nothing I can do about it. I think that's somewhat biased. No, I'm, I'm actually just kidding. That's, that's not on the scale. What was interesting is the one study that actually did a better job of priming, the Baumeister study, which showed that uh, people reduced their willingness to help others. That actually, the the primes there were some decent, really statements of what determinism was. Mm-hmm. I thought it also, but it also had this intriguing finding, and the finding was that priming people in the direction of free will didn't have any benefit. The people primed in favor of free will 
scored on their their uh, their willingness to help others the exact same as people who read neutral statements. It was only the people who read three or four sentences about determinism who who actually had a measurable effect. And the authors explain this by saying, well, they think what's happening is just about everybody in their sample already believed in free will. They just absorbed it from their culture. Mm. And so prompting them with free will didn't make a difference. Uh, but a few people then heard this statement of, of determinism and that actually and had a measured response. Them, so, it, mm. so it affected them more than the free will yeah. statements. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, as we've demonstrated on this show, you can talk about determinism for five hours and have somebody not get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Especially uh, because it's very hard to explain. Uh, it's, it can be. It's not as hard as some people make it. Uh, seem. I've right. pro- I'm probably guilty of making it a little bit harder. No, I'm, I'm more thinking of the people who are, who are trying to understand it. <laughs> who don't it. want just, to understand it. just can't. Get it. Well, well we've talked uh, but, about it too. The biggest hangup for people is that when is they think that they've defeated it when they use choice. So and so chose to do it. So therefore he can't be determined. And then you're like, but what caused the choice? See, I raised right. my hand. What caused that? Right. And what caused them to choose that? The state of your will, you do not will your will exactly. type of thing. The clearest I think uh chink in this armor too also is that what that shows there is that there is a we're in a culture, especially yes. in the US, that is where free will ish stuff permeates that and determinism mm-hmm. is viewed as bad or incorrect once you and so a lot of that effect there could be the effect of challenging someone's worldview causes them to be less helpful yeah. this right, is telling we, us what we already know and that this right. is already so enshrined in our in our institutions and in our view of things here in the west right I was, uh, that it's very hard for people to disentangle i was wondering if they made a distinction between people who are genuine determinists for good reasons and have come to that position for good reasons versus just being primed? Nope. I gave you the scales. I told you exactly what was on those to judge determinism. So they don't even make that distinction. There's nothing more to it either. (laughs) So it turns out what they find is actually that the the cultural relative component is is crucial. And this is another thing that irritated me about the article is that there are actually negative consequences of priming choice and free will. Mm -hmm. There's a series of studies done by uh, uh, his name is Krishna Savani. From Stanford, and uh, he doesn't sound American. I'm suspicious already when I saw that. <laughs> Krishna, stop it right there. Uh, and Savani's work actually is interesting because it shows he's uh, an, uh, a, a kind of a blend of experimental social psychologist, but then also the element of cultural differences. So he's used his Indian, obviously, and he compares United States samples to samples in India. And what, they, and what he's found is, is that, first of all, the Indian society is much less wedded to this idea that we have to choose everything. Right. And that is, is that when Americans, in some of the earlier studies he's done, Americans actually count things more as being chosen than people are living in India. Mm-hmm. That is essentially mm-hmm. like in a collectivist society, they, I guess from their point of view, would yeah. recognize that their options are more limited, well, whereas Americans tend to think that something's yeah. wrong with that. I mean, you can see it in their whole culture going back thousands of years. Or like that, with, yeah. from arranged marriages to mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. In, a, in, a, in a society like that or, or a caste system. Or, or belief a, in karma. Yeah, karma. We've, exactly. we've said is much more similar to laws of cause and effect than right. a free will so scenario. So clearly that culture, would you'd get less bent out of shape if you thought that you didn't choose every little thing in your life. Right. So what he what that's, what his study did actually was uh, in a series of studies, he had people watch, for example, videos and they were to count the number of times the guy in the video made a choice. Mm. So like he picked up a CD, he chose to do that, he turned on the radio, whatever. And that, uh, and that primed the concept of choice. And what he found was all sorts of negative things that were associated with, with the priming of choice. They, uh, this was in the Americans. 
Yes, yeah. and the Americans. That he found that people, for example, became more blaming of victims. Mm. Yeah, he, he asked them about a little guy and uh, and uh, you know a third world kid who was starving and what clearly wasn't his fault. And they tended to the people with tr- free will primed in America held him to be more responsible. He could choose not the to be starving. Yeah. yeah, and so the, the, the in the political realm, he found that people's uh, support for policy choices that that were more collectivist, like you know we should uh, give people help and support and things like that went down when they primed them with free will. And uh-huh. again, it's the, or the concept of choice. Right. It's not hard to see why, because if you have that activated, that we are masters of all our destiny, mm-hmm. and if you're not uh, doing well, then, well, you should have chosen Your differently. Your own damn fault. That would lead you to become less supportive of those people. Mm-hmm. But here's the kicker, though. The finding in the same experiments that were done in India were... It, it didn't change their opinion at all. Hmm. The effect was all driven by choice in Americans primed blaming. Wow. The India uh, subjects didn't change either way when they were primed with yeah, free yeah. will. So in a culture where you don't emphasize free will all that much, People are it's less affected not by free all will. that bad to be told you don't have free will. Right. Right. I would imagine that you would say, find the same thing with something like, you know, having uh, another thing that's analogous to free choice is that, uh, oh, um, you atheists are nihilistic because... When you die, you're going to go nowhere. Where if I had somebody who did believe in heaven, let's say all their life, and I zapped him with that, like, when you die, that's just the end. Of course, that person is going to react negatively because right. their worldview had been dependent on that. But for people who have always been, let's say, non-religious who don't build their you know, hopes and dreams on that sort of thing, if you prime them with when you die, you're going to rot in the ground, yeah, so, so what? Yeah. You wouldn't find a negative reaction to things like that. Right. Well, there's an interesting postscript to this God thinks like you before we go on to other things. And that was while I was looking at all these uh, all these different studies from the uh, from the simple apologetics blog, I noticed something curious about uh, many of the authors. A lot of times over and over again, I'd find Florida State University, Florida State University Mm. over and over again. A lot of these people seem to be coming from the same place. So I Baumeister is out there. Did a little bit of Googling to find out what was going on here. And it turns out the Templeton Foundation. Our old friends. Yes. I thought you were going to say they're Seminoles. No, wait. Is that their mascot with the Florida State? Gators? <laughs> I don't know. No, that's Florida. I know. Uh, the Templeton Foundation uh, a couple years ago gave a $4.4 million grant. Uh, Man, Chris Mooney should have held out for more. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. <laughs> To fund the Free Will, this is the name of the project, Free Will, Human and Divine Project, (laughs) Empirical and Philosophical Investigations. That is a great title. Yes. uh, They gave it to uh, Alfred Mealy, who is a a philosopher who argues forcefully for the existence of free will. The goal of the project is to bring uh, philosophers, psychologists, and theologians together to find a consensus on on uh, free will, and it's Just, basically it's basically the way the Templeton Foundation is once again trying to muddy the waters mm-hmm. by influencing the direction of of research. And um, apparently, some of these researchers have uh, bitten the hook. Well, yeah. yeah. So if you throw so, enough money at at a particular area of interest, it makes it seem like oh wow, look, all these studies are coming out. That find the same thing. Well, yeah, because yeah, it's all coming from the same. I'm pocket. saying there's a vested in a vested interest. I don't want to be accused of poisoning the well here. These studies rise or fall on their own merits, which is why right. I left that to the end of the segment. Right, right. we could debunk this without attacking yes. the the source of the money. 
Um, but I do say that, that because I think people should be aware. I do think that it yeah. uh, influences the plausibility of the researchers a little bit. It should make red flags go up in our mind. But also, you know, it's important that people be aware that like our episode that we did with um, Steve Novella from mm-hmm. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, the creationists are on to the fact that the next area of science that is going to roll over traditional religious dogma is neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The manifest image of the ego in control of its own destiny, uh, the little god inside of your head is under threat. Right. And they realize that and they're putting their money behind trying to stop that, trying to insert confusion into this debate. Let's do some counter apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. The design argument is one of the most intuitively compelling, in my opinion, arguments for God. Um, You know, but once you get past, once you move past the intuition, you actually start to analyze what's really being said and whether there are possibly other explanations for these things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it quickly falls apart. Well, one of my favorite ways to address uh, to address the argument from design is to bring up counterexamples. Uh, and most of our listeners will probably be familiar with some of the more popular counterexamples or examples for unintelligent design. Uh, just to name a few, you have the blind spot in the human eye. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. plate tectonics. You have the backward proportion of salt water to fresh water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difficult design of childbirth, mainly that you know walking upright. While it promotes smaller hips, bigger brains promote bigger heads to give birth to, and that's obviously a problem. Believe me, I've seen it happen. <laughs> it is a problem. My uh, A relative of mine, when bringing up the eye and some of these other blind spot and some of these other arguments, got really upset and shouted at me, but it works. <laughs> and I said... I think a supreme architect can do better than it works. Right. Well, and 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 the apparently octopus have far better eyes. Yes, they don't have the blind spots that so, uh, that you and I do. Um, so all of these are at least they they seem to me to be incredibly improbable given the hypothesis that you know this Earth was designed for us hmm. and we are special yeah. in some way. Maybe cephalopods are made in God's image. Right. Okay. So these. Uh, these sorts of poor designs would would get any designer fired on the spot by any self-respecting organization. However, it turns out that these actually make perfect sense when you think of them in the context of a purely natural world where life has evolved to fit the natural world and not the other way around. Um, Now, because life has evolved by natural selection, which is blind and which is a blind and stumbling process, it accounts for these unintelligent designs embarrassingly well. So I want to continue down this vein and talk about laughable designs in the human reproductive systems, specifically that if they are to be attributed... (laughs) Who told you... The room just got way more sensitive. (laughs) So, you know, if if these are to be called intelligently designed, uh, we're going to have to redefine what that even means. So, okay, so picture this. Uh, You have Yahweh sitting on his cloud... Mm-hmm. Up, up in the up in Care Bear Land. Yes. Yep. Uh, he's he's in a brainstorming session. Yes. Uh, so he's doing some sketches. 
Oh, maybe he's working on some specialized software. Uh, probably on a Mac because you know. Let's oh, be honest. On, yeah, come on. Um, so he's trying to de- he's trying to devise the perfect way to achieve his design goal. So in this scenario, the goal is to find the most uh, optimal way to create a healthy and loving sexual relationship between a man and a woman that leads to responsibly raising happy and healthy children to continue on the cycle. Sure. Monogamous, heterosexual. Yes. Good old traditional family. Reproductive sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the goal we want to be looking at. Uh, and how, how, well did it, how, how well did he do? Um, and, of course, for now, we're, we're just going to ignore the part in Genesis where God parades all the animals of the world <laughs> before Adam in hopes that he may find a helpmate uh, yeah. Only to find that Adam can't get no satisfaction. Um, <laughs> so I guess Ew. we'll just make a few modifications on the original prototype right. and, you know, presto. And, hey, look, their parts fit, too. Yeah. Uh, we've covered, yeah. like, before, natural law theory where people have cracked, used that as a club against gays or against, yeah, yeah, yeah. any other type of oh, sexual yeah. act. Um, the curious, curious case, case of, of Robert P. George, episode something or another. Well, basically, the philosopher uh, <laughs> the, got into another. some parts talk of how the parts, the bits fit together. The junk, yeah. the junk fits, yeah. I believe we said. Because, yes. because <laughs> the junk fits, we are now a one flesh unity, a one full flesh. organism capable of a static union. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> people have actually made this argument yes with a straight face and everything so so if that is the goal if creating such a relationship is the goal that uh that an all-powerful all-knowing god is is going to uh, lay out a design plan for Mm -hmm. does it sound intelligent for a man and woman to become sexually mature with raging hormones in their early teens rather than when they become reasonably rational and responsible (laughs) adults capable of actually raising the offspring. I have seen sixteen and pregnant. <laughs> it is a mistake of design. <laughs> well, as we've discussed, the age at uh, sexual onset does tend to be lower and fundamentalist, so they do walk the walk and believe <laughs> hey, that. Hey. There you go. Oh, well, I mean, isn't that their argument? they they want people to they you know to That's basically they walk the walk with the, the onset <laughs> with the onset of sexual maturation or the ability to have sex. Essentially, that they would say that you're ready to be married. And, I'm ready to start raising but, but the yeah. point is, is that reason and fertility do not coincide. In, in fact, tends to be um, when fertility is most on one's mind, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. reason... I believe there may be an <laughs> inverse relationship yes. between the two. Yes, very much so. <laughs> well, there was uh, actually, just to insert a, a quick God thinks like you, there was a study to uh, looking at willpower. This is by Don Ariely, where he uh, had people, and this is what stopped me, Listening to the, the book on tape, he had people <laughs> masturbate with laptops, and then to to, to record Ow. to re, no not with, with the laptop, laptops <laughs> while having in front of a laptop. Let's oh, put it that okay. way, as if that's foreign to you. Hey, I've I've read this one too. Plastic sheathed that could be operated with one hand. He was I need testing to get people's one of those. willpower, their, their ability to judge whether acts should be done or not, and so he had them yeah. like uh, on a control condition. But then during masturbating, yeah. right before orgasm, they're supposed to say, "Would you do this or would you do that?" Uh, yeah. Strange sexual acts, and uh-huh. obviously the. As should be no surprise the people were uh, in the throes of sexual arousal, shall we say, were very undiscriminatory about it who, was. Yeah. It was actually would do very dark. Uh, the, really? Yes. Explains yes, a lot about why rape decisions and, are made poorly. Uh, a lot of rape and a, a lot of different things. Age, the we age would not range want to at, at what they were willing to have yes. sex with went down. Oh, Ooh. yeah. Into the 
downrange. The, the wow. same person thinks quite a bit differently. That was <laughs> the my, closer was my point. they so get yes, to... Yeah. Justin's correct. There doesn't seem to be... <laughs> the frontal lobe doesn't function while one is in the throes of testosterone. Yeah. So. Yes, old adage about only enough blood to run one head. Uh, oh. Okay, this is... Oh. We're going to cut... <laughs> okay, so already he's not off to a good start. So uh, next, uh, instead of creating man to make one sperm cell a month as to not be wasteful and to be in perfect harmony with a woman's body, which mm-hmm. would be a good design and would attest to the beauty and the symmetry of, of these relationships, God instead creates man to make not one, not a hundred, not a thousand, not a million, not even a billion. God creates them to make more than 12 billion sperm cells per month. He has created an incredibly wasteful abortion machine of potential individuals. <laughs> I like that abortion machine. Good. Maybe we could concentrate them in packets like the, the back to cephalopods again. They have a little sperm packets that they that they take their tentacle right? and then deposit it. Yeah. You wouldn't even have to bother wasting time with sex. We could say, oh, I bought my sperm packet yeah. this month. And that would Very guarantee good. that it was never done just for, little for yellow pleasure. And blue, make green I believe seal. you'll see it's all in order. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, sir. That's a quality sperm packet. I imagine that is how English people have sex. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I did. did anybody else picture the cephalopods with top hats? And... Of course, in a monocle? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yes. Okay. Around their perfect eyes. <laughs> Around their perfect eyes. <laughs> Clearly just for show. Okay, so, so this hasty production of sperm uh, not surprisingly creates a situation where the testicle must be worn outside of the body because otherwise, you know, they would overheat. And destroy their contents. So now the situation is is kind of awkward. Uh, now we have these incredibly sensitive bags with their magical contents hanging and banging around <laughs> around in the most vulnerable of places between two legs that are constantly running, jumping, or walking down the aisle like the recently fabulous New Yorkers. That's right. Such a design plan looks more ad hoc than divine. <laughs> a thought that has occurred to every science student in junior high as they're laying on the football field. Uh-huh. Going, why? Why? <laughs> Also also problematic is that uh, in creating that much sperm, uh, the amount of sexual pressure and frustration that follows is an even worse design when you combine it with my earlier point. And so this is a recipe for teen pregnancy. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's God's problem. And the, prop, the proper, a proper sex education is the only answer that we actually know that actually works to right. some significant degree. Thirdly, if God is concerned with sex being the ultimate loving union, I can't help but be confused why, why he would create them and why he would create the organs to do such a thing in, in such close pros- proximity to the excretory systems. Uh, one does not install a water park next to a landfill. These are just bad zoning laws. Rather than intelligent planning, this seems to be designed for infection. Not uh, reproduction. Very true. Very true. <laughs> well, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole field also of of sperm competition, which suggests that the wastefulness is actually part of the process where where women choose the best sperm. Oh, right. And if it can means, survive. And it's certainly not monogamous. I can tell you that that a lot of the design features appear to be a, essentially an arms race between women and men right. for right. insemination that takes place even within her yeah. reproductive tract. Yes. The acidity. 
factor there. The, uh, it's the, a very the, hostile environment for, for sperm. That's or per, some sperm, sperm are will form sperm. a plug. Yeah, yeah the, the, the plug sperm. The uh, And then, you know, this, this isn't human, but other species of animals essentially have storage sperm where the female can then select previous partners. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, or, or ducks have multiple vaginas. Yes. Uh, they can force you down a false vagina. <laughs> well, many of the animals have sperm scoops that their penises mm-hmm. are designed to scoop out the previous guy. In fact, some I've people have I've heard a theory that, that the human phallus is yes. designed yeah. for the same fact, purpose. I, I was standing there looking at this study one time that somebody shoved in my hand. Oh, I found this on people testing the ability of the male penis, human penis to discharge other types of uh, ejaculate prior to the their ejaculate. Oh. And they tested different shapes in a plunger where they took a phallus-looking shape and other types of shapes and saw how much uh, fluid they discharged. I have heard of it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Especially when, when it's intact, I believe, it, uh, which would be the natural way of things. So clearly the bottom line with these studies is that, yes, that the whole monogamy were all designed to have just normal missionary position sex with one partner forever doesn't really look indicated by the design. Of right. The That's why God things. wants circumcision. <laughs> <laughs> Write up a proposal, Jeremy. I'll be a co-author. <laughs> okay, so clearly, uh, you know, the apparent design that we, we that we have seems to point much towards a kind of blind uh, evolutionary process that is strictly concerned with, you know, reproducing. Mm-hmm. If, if we were to bring that up in a discussion, we might get the claim that, well, the design used to be perfect. But sin has entered the world and has degraded God's handiwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? There's three points to be made of this. If they are going to use that, uh, then they shouldn't be using the design argument. (laughs) Right. Right. Secondly, these failures in design are precisely the kind we would expect from a blind natural force. Mm -hmm. Um, Thirdly, these aren't actually just broken down designs that have adjusted back to their pure godly form would would reflect a kind of flawless design of a perfect creator. These are fundamental design errors, mm-hmm. not just suboptimal in degree of quality right. of design, but sub-op- suboptimal in the kind of design approach. The features I described are complex structures that had to come about through some process. So unless sin has some kind of uh, mechanism by which it degrades things, these these observations are incredibly improbable under the hypothesis that human beings were intelligently designed for this purpose. You'd have to make the argument that when this ripple effect of sin went out into the world and made predators want to eat prey and made, you know, people want to screw each other and not just their wives. Yeah, you'd have to to make the case that this sin wave had the effect of making the world look exactly the way it would had there not been a god. So now here's a book that we think you should check out, but you don't have to take my word for it. Yeah, so um, the re- actually I, I happened upon my – I read all the time like you guys do, but I happened upon this particular reading and I think it was important to mention in the podcast for sort of my own personal research reasons. And that is I, I – as listeners might know, I publish uh, research on some of the projects I've talked about here. And one of the reviewers who's reviewed my work made a criticism when I tried to suggest that, if you recall, I did those studies earlier with the CFI group 
comparing people who were members of a secular organization and showing that they had equivalent mental health with members of church groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Profiles and, of the Godless episode. And something I, or another. Yes, so that's <laughs> in our back files. Go listen. But my claim with that one was that it wasn't the belief that made the difference in mental health because that's a traditional claim of apologist and social some social scientists that's right. it's good to believe because you're happier yes. essentially but it wasn't it was the belonging and being a member of a group the belief was just ancillary it was icing on the cake mm-hmm. and i showed that that members of a strong attending members of a secular group were just as happy and satisfied and whatever mm-hmm. as church members well the one of the reviewers of this work came back with a, a critique of that saying that you can't separate belief from belonging that there are that there are two peas in a pot. If you believe in God, uh, that's part and parcel of church attendance. Mm-hmm. And he listed that I should go read the work of Robert Putnam. Now, this is a sociologist who a few years ago had an influential book called Bowling Alone, yes. where he argued that yeah. America was sort of changed since this 50s, the, the prototype yeah. of the, the, um, the, the bowling alley as being the social place where we would all meet. Yeah, I've, and... I, I've heard the guy, I think he was on This American Life or something. Yeah. It, it sounds like a very interesting book. His theory is that religion is like that social glue. Right. And that in the way that we used to be, everybody was a member of the bowling league and get together, we're all, all sitting in our little rooms doing the internet and we're now not we're isolated from actual human interaction. Yeah, and so a lot of the negative effects on society are the isolation and not being a member of a communal group. Mm. Well, his latest book is called American Grace, How Religion Divides Us and Unites Us. And his co-author on this one is David Campbell. But basically, Putnam and Campbell uh, argue several things, some of which, uh, as you mentioned, he made the rounds on NPR and did interviews where he suggested some things about religion that are changing over the past decades. There are, for example, more We've talked about it before here. More secular people or nuns, although he thinks this is just a reaction to sort of the religious right of the of the Bush That's era. N O N E. The nun nuns. Yes. No. That's hard to pick up in audio. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he also argues, for example, that pluralism has served America well in that we have a bunch of different religions that get along fairly well. And he called this, I think, the Aunt Sally effect, where if you know that your Aunt Sally is a different religion than you, it's hard to hate her because she's you know, she's not going, how could she be going to hell because I like her, that sort of thing. But one of the other arguments, though, that this reviewer wanted to guide me towards is the benefits of religion. And so Putnam spends pages and pages, you can't see it because it's radio, but uh, it goes through tables after tables showing at one end of graphs People who are dedicated religious believers who go to church are give more, they volunteer more, they're right. healthier, they have more friends, whatever. And at the other end of the graphs, down in the bottom, are people who are not a member of a church and don't go to things and they don't give to charity. Yeah. So, sounds like a redo of some of David Meyer's work, which yeah. we discussed on it a does. friendly interview with David Meyer, episode something or not. It does. And so I, uh, given that fact of, you know, I was flipping through this bludgeoning, the, and the thing's a doorstep. The re- readers can <laughs> probably is, hear it this. It is big. This is a... Well, listen to that. It's huge. But uh, all these graphs, and eventually I came to, you know, in my mind I'm saying, but it's you're comparing people who are high believers and church attenders right. with people who are just indifferent or who right. don't go to church. Apple storages. Right. So, and I was thinking about way do I could respond to this reviewer who pointed me to this work. And then I found, and little bells went off in my head there, at the end of this bludgeoning of social science showing that religious people are better than I'm crap, I found it. I found this. I found this passage. I'm just going to read it in, in Putnam and Campbell's own words. This is not me. This is their quote. Putnam and Campbell say, "It is belonging that matters, not believing." All right, uh, and they go on to say uh, that the when you compare people, controlling for the frequency of church attendance after doing that, 
they're saying. Now, one of these measures is correlated with measures of good neighborliness. Once we know how observant a person is in terms of church attendance, nothing we, that we can discover about the content of her religious faith adds anything to our understanding or prediction of her good neighborliness. And so he says, uh, basically, essentially, he's saying that it is the belonging, it being a member of an active church group. And once you take that into account, the belief content matters but, not a whit. But that can't be, Luke, because that's what you said. Yeah. So, uh, you know, really, I thought that was interesting to be able to, that, that they, and it's kind of hidden at the back of a chapter, that uh, if yeah. you were just skimming through the book, you'd say, oh, uh, religious belonging is great. I should join mm-hmm. the church. Uh, they give more to charity. They're good neighbors in, in Putnam and Campbell. 500 place. pages of propaganda. And then just, two paragraphs of and reality. And two paragraphs of essentially <laughs> undercutting the entire thing, which from my point of view, I mean, maybe people would look at that and say, Oh, that sounds like statistical mumbo jumbo, or still it matters that church people believe. But when you know people like we do who are members, who are strongly committed members of groups that are secular, mm-hmm. we know that those people are also actively involved. And it's not the, it's not the belief that makes a difference at all. And they right? reap the exact same benefits. So I would recommend that this is a very useful book, and he talks about religion. Especially role. those two paragraphs. Yeah, especially those paragraphs. But if you just, when you read work like that and similar to it, you always have to have in the back of your mind, what's the mechanism of the social glue here or the or the, right. the pro-social neighborliness type of thing. And you know for most people reading that, they're not going to get to those paragraphs and they're not going to understand them Especially when they do. It's far back in the book. Yeah, too. yeah. yeah. yeah you know, most people, the take-home message is going to be religion good. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, even though the authors have been careful to... Yeah, I qualify felt, what they mean. It, it is maybe, you feel kind of betrayed looking at something like that. I, I feel a little snarky putting putting responding to this reviewer by putting the chapter in verse because he made the argument. <laughs> he, he, was, he was telling me to go look at this book and he and he made the analogy that that to separate belief, religious belief from religious belonging, is like separating uh, a, in a hurricane the wind speed from the storm surge. You can't. He was. That's the the metaphor he used. And so at the end of mine, I I said to use the uh, the reviewer's <laughs> analogy um, to suggest that wind cannot be separated from storm surge is suggesting that only hurricanes, but not tornadoes, can damage houses. One, <laughs> one, can, one can presumably well, waterproof ooh. the basement and hire a separate contractor to do the roofing job. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. Well done. Well done indeed. That's okay. my little book review rant for the summer. <laughs> All right. Um, and next week, good night, moon. Shall we wrap up with a little bit of polyatheism? In honor of the recent spate of politicians getting caught in sex scandals, which is a great thing to say because it's always topical. You can be listening to this on the day it's released or 10 years in the future. <laughs> That's true. And it's still relevant. Very yeah. true. People should know we didn't plan this out no, no, this no. way. Uh, <laughs> well, this we just, just insert the names. Well, Senator Wiener <laughs> got caught again. We have a form. Hell, yeah. you could even be listening to this 10 years in the past <laughs> and it works. So today we're talking about the original philandering world leader, Zeus. Mm. Zeus Greek king of the gods, god of lightning, the sky, and the guarantor of cosmic justice. Like the lightning he wields, Zeus is flashy, unpredictable, powerful, and scary as hell. But he had a much more humble beginning. He was born into the world as the would-be dinner for his infanticidal father, Cronus. 
Cronus had already devoured Zeus's older siblings, fearing that one of his children would kill or castrate him as he had his own father. If you're worried about your kids stealing your position as top dog in the universe, the most logical thing, of course, is to eat them. Was Cronus a titan? He was. Hmm. Zeus's mother, Rhea, also a titan, and his grandmother, Gaia, plotted against Cronus and switched the newborn baby Zeus with a rock which he ate instead. Fooled you. This is, of course, the point where the story becomes hard to swallow, pardon the pun. As all good atheists know, babies are soft and delicious, whereas rocks Mm. are not. Are we really to believe that Cronus couldn't tell the difference between moist, succulent baby flesh and a rock? (laughs) Anyway. The delicious baby Zeus was hidden away in a cave on the island of Crete where he grew to manhood. There's a number of different accounts of Zeus's infancy, but my favorite involves him being fed by the goat Amalthea, while a bunch of lesser gods made noise outside the cave so that Cronus wouldn't hear the baby crying. When he was of age, he thanked Amalthea, the goat whom he had suckled from, by killing her and giving away her magical horns. To be fair, this isn't a far cry from the way most children show their gratitude to the people who raised them. Amen. (laughs) Rhea then slipped Cronus some Ipecac, and he ralphed up all his (laughs) other children, now fully grown. They joined forces with Zeus, defeated the Titans, and committed bloody regicidal patricide. Which we know today by watching Remember the Titans. (laughs) Yeah, never never forget. (laughs) Never forget. So Zeus took his place as top god after he and his siblings slew their daddy and then finally solidified the spot by killing the monstrous Typhon. From that point on, even though he's the guarantor of cosmic justice and all that, Zeus's life takes on a slightly more domesticated feel. I liken it a lot of the stories of the Greek gods to sitcoms in the sky, especially Zeus's relationship with his sister-slash-wife Hera. They're kind of like Raymond and that awful woman who plays his really unpleasant wife. Wow. It's one of those relationships that I just don't get. They clearly hate each other, and yet they stay together. Where most sitcom wives just... Sorry. 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 (laughs) Where most sitcom wives just find themselves married to ugly and or fat guys who make a lot of dumb choices... Hera's anger is a bit more legitimate. Zeus doesn't just forget her birthday or bring the boss home for dinner unannounced. He is possibly the least faithful husband in history. Worse than Newt Gingrich, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, and John Edwards combined. See, I included a couple of Democrats, too. Well-rounded, fair and balanced. Yes. (laughs) Genghis Khan was jealous of the number of goddesses, nymphs, females, and male mortals... And animals, Zeus coaxed into sex with him. He sounds like Freddie Mercury. (laughs) (laughs) Freddie wishes. In fact, the planet Jupiter, named after the Roman name of Zeus, has more than 60 moons, all of which are named after lovers of Zeus. Don't worry, though. Until they find 200 or or so more moons, they'll still have names left to use. I think Walt Chamberlain's got him if we're talking in the 200s. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Imagine if we named our planets Gene Simmons. (laughs) (laughs) To add insult to injury, of course, his sister-slash-wife Hera wasn't just any random goddess. She was the goddess of 
Marriage. Marriage. <laughs> Which tells you a bit about wow. what the Greeks may have thought God, about marriage. That's sad. Isn't that rough? Yeah. Another one coming out of your forehead now? <laughs> <laughs> of course, with each of his consorts, Zeus also had children. Because it's mythology, and no one knows how to use protection in mythology Every instance of sex leads to a pregnancy, which is evidence of design, at least in <laughs> mythology, right? Or he lived in Texas, essentially. <laughs> yes. Uh, he had literally hundreds of offspring, including the Olympians Ares, Apollo, Artemis, sometimes Aphrodite, Hermes, Athena, who was born fully grown and fully armored from his forehead, Dionysus, whom he sewed into his thigh Hi. when Dionysus was yet a fetus, Demigods, Perseus, Hercules, Helen of Troy, as well as the Fates, the Graces, and the Muses. And the Supremes. And the Supremes. <laughs> well, Odin <laughs> is known as the All-Father in Norse mythology, it's no doubt that Zeus has earned that title above all others. If you want a handy way to remember Zeus's offspring, I've composed a little song to help. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Give me a beat. Oh, oh there's Persephone and Ursa Lemos and Orion and Theon and Achis Solomus and... Okay, it just really, it goes on You need to work there. on that. Yeah. Just for a second there, I thought, he's going to do it. I, I'm going to have to sit here and listen to this. I was expecting, you know, breakbeat stuff. So... I invite you to make your own song uh, featuring the offspring of we Zeus. We'll accept submissions. What rhymes with Ganymede? I don't know what rhymes no, with Ganymede. No, Ganymede was his gay lover. Was a young boy that he kidnapped to be his cupbearer up in Mount Olympus. It just gets worse. I mentioned something and he has uh, I don't know, right? <laughs> so anyway, in a nutshell, that is Zeus. Lightning-wielding philanderer and god of gods. Just one more god worth not believing in. So that's going to do it for us this week in possibly our sexiest episode ever. <laughs> Until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, and love letters to doubtcast at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook Clearly. or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Join the discussion at our forum at doubtcast.forummotion.net. Buy some nifty Doubtcast swag at Zazzle.com slash Doubtcast, including the Determined to Listen to Reasonable Doubts t-shirt. Hey, hey, hey. One of my favorites. You must buy. Or faded or pre Must buy t-shirt. Or... Pre-shrunk, predestined. <laughs> <laughs> Write us a review, share us with a friend, and we'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. So how how do we want to introduce it? And now it's time for, for summer book a second for... segment of God Thinks Like You. <laughs> I rule the world. God thinks like you a lot. More Luke. <laughs> I've been doing reading this summer. Wait, how did LeVar Burton do it? 
with those um, with the glasses. Reading oh, oh rainbow. yeah. Um, um, I don't get the reference, but thanks. So I have, oh, I have my own intro you don't to watch that. Reading one. Rainbow. Our listeners will get it, dudes. I was reading before <laughs> the Reading Rainbow became. I was reading when Morgan Freeman was Easy Reader. Wow. I thought I'm going to be impressive. hip like that. You were cat. reading before LeVar Burton was Kunta Kinte. <laughs> <laughs> that dates yes. me.